It's so treacherous and dangerous. <laughs> All right, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of Hebrews. We continue our study. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And uh, we're going to stay in the same passage we were in last week. We're really focusing on uh, the, the last uh, hunk of verses, but we're going to take this whole thing into context. Uh, chapter 4, verse 14 of Hebrews, and this is God's word Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was." So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says, in, says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, there's a uh, sound term that uh, you may or may not know, but I bet it's one that uh, a lot of you understand. The sound uh, engineering term is signal flow. Richard Loom, of course, understands what signal flow is, and uh, I bet you understand it too. Who, who in here has set up a home stereo at some time in their life? Or uh, computers on your, uh, on your uh, speakers on your computer, okay? Then you probably understand signal flow. The rest of you are going, man, what? Signal flow means, um, you know, if you watch a movie, uh, it comes into your house somehow. So either through the wall, if you have Comcast or Wi-Fi or whatever, Netflix, if you're watching a streaming m- a movie, it, the, the signal comes into your house somehow. And uh, it gets to your TV somehow. And if you have an external sound system, it leaves that television, goes into that, and then shows up in your house at various points for this glorious sound system. The signal has to flow. So when you look at at the back of your uh, TV and all that, you see all the little uh, inputs and all that stuff, and it looks all so confusing. The way to sort it out is you go, okay, where does the signal flow? Same thing here at the church. The signal flows. I mean, somebody goes, la, la. Well, when they go, la, la, it has to 
it goes somewhere. That's, that's, a, that's a source. That's a sound source. It goes here. And uh, you may or may not know this, but backstage, upstairs, there's an amp room up there, so it's powered somehow. Um, there's conduit running all through the stage floor. By the way, there's an amp room back behind that wall through the kitchen there you don't even know about. Uh, that's what's powering all this. This is a signal source right here. It's getting to you. It's going somewhere. And in a sanctuary, it goes through a system of effects and so on. It, it runs to the, the sound booth, and you hear it. The people on the stage hear it, and uh, it splits off to be recorded. But the signal flows somewhere. All that to say, ain't nothing heard without a source. <laughs> and uh, my point is, uh, despite all the twists and uh, turns in this life, um, there's a source There's a source of salvation, and that's where we get our main point today. Our main idea is Christ's gifted righteousness is the source of salvation. Um, I have one more thing to, to, a little left turn to make before we get to the the passage at hand. Uh, I feel like it's a part of my job to be in touch with culture. So I feel like I have to watch the Grammys. And Tammy does it with me too. I feel like, we feel like we have to watch the Grammys. We have to watch the Oscars. We have to watch the horrible MTV Music Awards. I even suffer through a little bit of country, which uh, is uh, probably a form of persecution, but I feel like it's an important thing to do to uh, stay in touch with the culture for the sake of the gospel. Uh, I, I try to keep the habit of paying attention because as soon as you lose the habit of paying attention, culture speeds by you um, and, and you kind of lose your grip on it. In fact, I, I have a, my, my favorite seminary professor ever um, and really the second most influential uh, pastoral person in my life, Dr. Young being the first, this one the second. Um, he was awesome. Uh, if you want to know why I sound the way I sound when I teach, it's, it's that guy. Um, but... Every illustration is about a Civil War general or a battle or a World War II guy or a battle. Every single illustration. After a while, it's just like, golly, dude, man, like watch a movie or something, anything. Uh, You know, watch Gilmore Girls, anything to just anchor yourself in what's happening, you know? Um, So I feel like I have to pay attention to culture. But let me tell you, my, my single greatest difficulty in that is abject boredom. I mean, I find culture, I find all these, you know, the, the pop stars, advertisers, fashion, the arts, uh, all these attempts to be iconoclastic, I just find it to be so boring. Um, people are trying to shock, you know, they're shocking you, they're shocking you, and after a while, you know, it's like a Transformers movie where you're like, dude, I'm just bored by all the banging and the booming, you know? Well, all that to say... There's nothing new under the sun. Um, It's downright boring. But the common filament that runs through all that, I think, is that we want to find some semblance of meaning. I think that everybody, Christians and non-Christians, want to find some trace of of, uh, substance to life on this earth. And so I say to the Christian and I say to the seeker that Christ's gifted righteousness is the source of salvation and that... He, the gospel, the God of it, is what your soul hunts for. All right. So to the passage, uh, Jesus was made like us. I continue this theme from last time, but I want to kind of set it in a specific context. If you would look at verse 16 of uh, chapter 4, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, everybody knows what a throne is. Uh, Everybody knows the significance of a throne. It's a place of power and authority. It's a place where a king sits. It's a place that cannot be approached cavalierly. Um, If you don't believe me, just try running across the White House lawn and see what happens to you. Um, You just don't approach a position of uh, authority and supreme power um, lightly. And uh, the Bible purposely portrays God in this kingly way throughout. God has never... Uh, viewed cavalierly in the scriptures. He's always portrayed as the high and holy one who is, uh, who is um, uh, approached only by the way that he deigns. So, um, you know, in our passage here, it says, uh, listen, listen to the way God, God speaks. Some will enter God's rest and some won't. Uh, that's what the Bible says here. Look at chapter four, verse two. Um, For good news came to us. Hey, good news, yay. As to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they didn't believe it. They weren't united by faith by the ones who believed. So it's saying some people believe the good news given by God. Some people don't believe the good news. It goes on to say those who believe the good news will enter God's rest. You know what God says about those who don't believe? What he says? They shall not enter my rest. God gets to determine how he is approached God has the say. He has the kingly say. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. To make, to make matters more uh, honed in, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is not some shabby guilt Uh, and shame that's imposed upon us by culture. I mean, that's what people say. Well, you know, culture expects these things from us, and when we don't meet the expectations of the culture, then we feel shame, and it all has to kind of do with our surroundings. Get out of here, man. The high and holy one sees everybody naked and exposed, and he is the one who says, we must give account. He's the one who looks into the deep recesses of the soul. He's the one who um, sees through our cheap acting jobs. He's the one who turns every mossy stone over and looks underneath. He knows every thought and intention of our hearts. And you know, that, that may or may not mean anything to you, um, and, and it, I can't, I can't make it mean something to you. One of the worst, uh, one of the worst uh, preaching experiences I ever listened to in my life was on a junior high trip many, 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 many years ago. And basically, it was uh, an out of touch guy talking to junior high kids for forty seven minutes. It was just oh long and painful. And basically, he was going through lists of sins in the Bible. Going, you ever done that? You ever done that? You ever done that? You ever done that? And, you know, they're just, you know, not even tracking with them. But, you know, it's like, dude, come on. You, I, you can't convict people by reading them a list of sins. So I can't, I can't force you to be convicted. But I can tell you that if you are convicted, if it does frighten you, if it does at least arrest your attention, that no creature is hidden from God's sight, that you are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom you must give personal account, if that really does rattle your heart, then there's really good news. Good news is that if you believe, you can enter God's rest, saith the scriptures. Now, how is that even possible? I mean, look at verse, uh, uh, verse 14 of chapter four. 
Since then, we have a great high priest, yea, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's good news. That's good news indeed. We have this Jesus who's a savior. He's, he's not defeated. He's okay. Um, look at verse 16 of chapter four. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in uh, times of need. That's, that's excellent news. But how is that possible? How, if we are sinners, if God can't have any sin or spot or blemish, any iniquity, any dirt, any filth in his presence, if he loves us but we're sinners, how is, can that possibly be reconciled? Well, chapter five, verse one. From every high, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. The point there is, ladies and gentlemen, there is a means, there is a way, there is one path, there is a portal that takes us to the throne of God, but it's the way God says. Um, Human beings who are aware of, feel uh, their own sin can be freely and forever forgiven. So look at chapter five, verse five. It says, Christ did not exalt himself. You know, Aaron was chosen, right? God chose Aaron, he was appointed. It says in verse five, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Uh, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, here's a quote about this being appointed. This is a very important uh, point. Um, uh, Kistemacher is the one who said this, Simon Kistemacher. Um, he said, anyone who is inducted into sacred office must be called by God. If this is not the case, he is an affront to God and a provocation to his people. Um, you know, this is not an intramural, intramural debate, uh, and I'm referring to Catholicism, by the way. Um, friends, if I were, if my, if my job title was priest, that'd make me kind of nervous. Um, because there's one forever and final priest. I mean, the Bible makes it very clear. None is needed after Christ. He is the great high priest, the great high priest. He is the full and final sacrifice. When he said it is finished on the cross, he means it is finished. There is one intercessor between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures say. One intercessor between God and man. One. It's Jesus Christ. One. He's the great high priest. I, I, I couldn't be called a priest, ladies and gentlemen. There is one who tore the veil. There is one who paid the blood debt. Uh, there is one who kept the whole law. And there's one who engrafts true Israel into true Israel. And a more covenantal statement you'll never find. In fact, I gotta, I gotta put that on Bloodworth Life because that's a good quote, isn't it? Um, where true Israel is grafted into true Israel. I think that's a good way to put it. My point is, we do need shepherds. We do need pastors. We do need leaders. We need overseers that's, that's built into the church. But the Bible's point here is, the one who represents us before God, ultimately, ultimately, finally, is one chosen by God, and that is Jesus Christ. Uh, turn, if you would, a left about, uh, really, literally, 10 pages uh, to 1 Timothy 2. 
There it is. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, ladies and gentlemen, look up for a sec. This is your application. Salvation is a gift given to you. Salvation comes from outside of you and is given to you. That's a critical point. There's a, there's a big difference between uh, imputation and imparting, imputing and imparting. Um, you know, we sing a Christmas song. I can't even think of the lyrics. Uh, uh, God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. It's a good thing to sing. God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. He gives you gifts. Yay. But when it comes to salvation, God doesn't impart Jesus' righteousness. He doesn't say, hey, um, give me a crappy life. Now, here's a little, uh, here's a little go-go juice. Now, you go get them with this little help. You not, you, okay, I got you started. I've imparted you something to you. Now, you go get them. No, no, no. It has been imputed to your account. It has been reckoned to your account. When God looks at your spiritual bank account, he doesn't see a big zero. He sees the fullness of Jesus Christ's righteousness. That's what the great high priest has afforded for you. That's what the ultimate sacrifice has done. Um, uh, you know, salvation um, is not just a, a nice eternity, a, a, some spiritual uh, Cape Cod. Um, it's... Um, um, it says, uh, in the days of his flesh, um, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Um, you know, friends, that's a debated verse. Does that mean it's saying, oh, well, is that just uh, referring to Jesus uh, in his humanity on this earth, or is this a specific reference to, a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane? Lots of people, maybe even most scholars, think that that's a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, um, in, in the shadow of the cross. Maybe it is, but here's a good quote on that. It says, while we must not limit the reference to Gethsemane, yet there this element in the passion is most clearly and fully presented to us. I think the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to a Jewish audience and he's saying, hey, um, it's summarized in the passion of the Christ. It's summarized in Jesus' um, hours before the cross. But the point is that he is the mediator, that he came to live this life um, to, to carry out the, um, the gospel itself. He, he knew our infirmities because he dwelled with us uh, in the flesh. All right, next point. Jesus understands us. Um, look at verse 8. It says, um, oh, sorry, six. Look at verse six, uh, halfway through six. Uh, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, there's that weird guy's name, Melchizedek. And it happens again at, at verse 10. Being designated um, by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who the heck is this dude, Melchizedek? Well, you know, it, it's, uh, his first appearance was um, in uh, Genesis 14. And uh, I think he's... Um, 
I think he's referenced in the Bible like 10 times, but seven of them are in the book of Hebrews. And uh, chapter seven, you'll see, is all about this guy, Melchizedek. There's a lot of references to Melchizedek. So we'll be talking about more of that uh, soon. But I think what you need to know here is um, the, uh, like I say, the writer is writing to a Jewish audience. And when he, when he says Melchizedek, they don't go, Mel, who's a what? They go, oh, Melchizedek. I know what you're getting at. Melchizedek uh, was someone that Abram um, yielded to. It's, he's this mysterious figure in Genesis 14. He's this priestly figure. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything he owns. What do we know about this guy? Not a whole, much, not a whole lot, this Melchizedek guy, but he's in some kind of priestly function, and he precedes the legal system. He precedes the ceremonial law. Um, he's this mysterious priestly figure, and um, he's before the Mosaic law, sacrificial system, and so on. In fact, the Bible keeps him mysterious, and I think the Bible keeps him mysterious, honestly, on purpose, so that a bunch of dumb idiots don't try to start to worship the guy or exalt him to some improper place. Um, but the point is this. There needs to be a mediator. There needs to be a go-between. There needs to be a priest between God and men, but that priest has to represent us precisely. And um, in, in verse five, it says, Christ didn't exalt himself to be a, uh, made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, today, you're my son. I've begotten you. You're a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In verse seven, in the days of his flesh, his humanity, there's Jesus offering up prayers and supplications and so on. Jesus was as human as any person sitting in this room. He was fully God, fully divine, but he was as human as any person sitting in this room as well. Um, he, was, he was purely a human, and he, he uh, resisted sin in every respect. Now, here's how this matters to your life. Here's why, here's why Jesus understands you. You know, folks, um, we think of, we think of uh, death on a cross, right? We, we, we say, oh, well, Jesus died a death on the cross. He, he died on a sin. He died on the cross to pay my sins. Death on a cross. It might be better to think eternal death on a cross. Jesus died the eternal death on the cross. I mean, he lived as a human being. He felt what it was like to be in a human body. He knew what it was like to be in this world that we're looking at. I mean, if I'm bored with culture and looking around and seeing all the degradation and, and um, how, how downright bizarre things are getting. Did you see the, uh, the three guys that got married in Thailand? Uh, it's getting weirder and weirder and our culture's spiraling and spiraling. And I don't know what you do with a democracy. Once it, once it fleshes out and gets all litigated, um, I don't know what happens uh, except that Rome someday falls. I mean, Rome fell. I don't know what happens. But uh, you look at your culture and you just go, man, well, Jesus was plopped right down in the middle of humanity. This is nothing new. Um, if, if there's internet pornography, there was, there was live pornography back then. Jesus understood this life. He understood what it was like to go to a funeral and sit there and feel grief over the people who are hurting. He knew what that was like. And uh, he related to us in every respect. But ladies and gentlemen, he lived a holy life and did not sin. It's hard not to sin, isn't it? It's hard, not, it's hard to hold your words back when you want to say something that will, that will further your selfish purposes. It's hard to hold back, but Jesus held back. 
It's hard not to sin, but Jesus resisted, resisted, resisted his whole lifetime as a human being. He understands you. And then he died the eternal death, your eternal death. I mean, uh, if, if sin is now removed from you as far as east is from west, that, that's, that's eternal death, uh, removed from the graciousness of God. Um, that's what Jesus did and felt. Um, you know, I, I kind of I like watching movies and Hollywood stunt doubles and stuff, and it's, it's kind of fun to, to look at Tom Cruise standing next to the guy who looks like Tom Cruise. Uh, Tom Cruise is like, I'm not ju- jumping off that thing. And that guy's like, well, I'll do it. And I look like Tom Cruise. I mean, every, every actor has some kind of stunt double who jumps in the scene and does it for them. And what I'm saying to you is that Jesus is your substitutionary curse bearer. He's the stand-in, the eternal stand-in, died the eternal death for you so that you could have his eternal righteousness. Last point, Jesus supplies for us. In verse eight, it says, um, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And, uh, you know, you look at that term and you go, that's such a strange, uh, he learned obedience. What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? Well, he never ceased to be divine. I mean, he knows how we're constructed. He, uh, he is, uh, shares the same attributes as God the Father. He's of the same essence and stuff, all right? So he comes to this earth and he's not surprised but he does come to this earth and he comes as a small child. And um, he really did grow in wisdom and stature. He really did experience what it was like to be tempted and then resist. He really did live this life. And so what that means is when he learned obedience is that he faced temptation and surpassed it. He faced temptation, didn't give in. He, he learned obedience in that way and thus became perfect, it says in verse nine, was made perfect. It's not that he wasn't perfect and had to get cleaned up or anything, but it, and what it means there is that, that he became eligible. Um, his, his eligibility was made complete by his coming to earth to be a human being, experience what we did, yet not give in. That's what it means. So um, one writer asks this. He says, um, is it legal fiction? Um, in other words, did Jesus really grant us his righteousness or is it kind of a paper transaction? Uh, God says, oh yeah, I like what you did there on the cross. Uh, Jesus, good job. And uh, guys, uh, listen, just, you know, just come on in. Uh, great, great. We'll just kind of paper transaction. Or are you really righteous? I mean, that's a hard thing to understand, isn't it? Because every one of us has sinned. And we look at our lives in this last week and we go, man, gosh, there's all kinds of, uh, there's still, there's still, there's still bad. So what does it mean that I'm righteous? Well, it is that Christ's righteousness is applied to your account. And that when God looks at you, when you pray to God, you know, it's okay to say, I'm sorry. I, I say it all the time. I say, Lord, I'm so sorry. In fact, you know, we're having communion today. I pull that hunk of bread and I, I go, Lord, I'm sorry. <laughs> I am sorry. But um, when God looks at me, you know what he sees? Christ. That's the real application, ladies and gentlemen, that God sees the perfection of his son. He doesn't look at you and go, eh. that doesn't mean that he doesn't hate sin. He does. It doesn't mean that he doesn't discipline. He does. He disciplines those he loves. 
But when he looks at you, I, I, think, I think Christians tend to think that God looks at him and goes, she's gross. He sees the beauty and righteousness of his son. That's not legal fiction. That's, that's righteousness really applied. Um, hey, let me read you something real quick. Um, Yeah, listen, Paul says this in Philippians. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from observing the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what Paul's banking on. Not something from within me, but something that has been gifted to me. If you walk out of here with anything today, walk out with this. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. The minute you pulled out a dollar bill or your best efforts or you got a wink, wink, um, you don't get it. It's a gift. You know, it, it's, not, uh, it's not God holding out a dollar and you grabbing it. It's looking down in your pocket and seeing that there's a dollar there. That's grace. All right, last thing. Um, Brent Wilkins uh, has a, an interesting sideline uh, thing that he does, which is he, he crawls in caves. And, uh, and I would say that he's built for that activity. Uh, I'm not necessarily built for that activity. It'll, you know, I'm, I'm greasy enough maybe, but, uh, but uh, you know, every time I bring that up, I say, oh yeah, my boss uh, is a caver. And pe- every time I say it, somebody goes, I went spelunking once. And I have to correct them and say, spelunking is for tourists. Caving is what that guy does. Spelunking is you go on a little tour and oh, look, mm-hmm. There's a coffin over there. Look, somebody died. There's a bone. Caving is what he does. And, uh, you know, he goes to these obscure places. And, uh, you know, when you think of a cave, you think of like a nicely carved thing. You go, ooh, a cave, like in the movies, you know? Gilligan's Island, let me get the torch, you know? Um, But when he goes into a cave, it's like a gnarly hole in the ground that you'd never even think. I mean, basically they go, oh, look, I think there's a little air coming through there. They dig and then they, they shimmy down the dirt. And uh, often, I mean, I've seen a zillion pictures of his. He'll, he'll, they'll shimmy into the dirt someplace in Kentucky or where do you go? Anywhere. I mean, he's done it in Europe. He knows cavers all over the world. Um, National Geographic funded uh, cave mapper over here. But anyway, he, he shimmies down into some hole and uh, it's a 200 foot drop on a rope. Down he shimmies. You know, you just think, ooh, let's explore. No, there's a big, a big drop and there's bats and snakes and stuff in the wall. And, and, you, and then you got these, uh, you know, things that you got to go through and you, you got to push your pack through and the water's this high and you only can, you know, get through that. It's amazing. Oh, it's horrifying. Yeah, it is. Fascinating. It's a whole, it's, it's really, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like being an astronaut, only, you know, bad. Uh, <laughs> But my point is, ladies and gentlemen, when, when he climbs in that little hole and rappels down two or 500 feet, isn't 500 the, the biggest one? You, I mean, 500 feet, 500 feet down into the pitch black, 
he's, he's, he's hanging on to one thing, the tree or whatever they tied the rope up on, on there. There's one source, folks. There's one source. There's one way out of that cave. There's one way up. One source is keeping him alive. And that's the whole point, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Jesus accomplished it all. You get that right, you get everything right. You get it wrong, you get everything wrong. There's a source of salvation, and the source of salvation is Jesus Christ's righteousness given to you by his work on the cross. And it is finished means it is finished. It is finished doesn't mean now you go finish it. It's finished. Lord Jesus, we're humbled before you. In fact, we don't even pray to be humbled. We just are humble. We're humble. We're glad to be humble. We're, we're glad to remember that this God is uh, reigning on a throne, that uh, you, Holy Father, uh, receive us uh, only by the means that you provide, only, only in the way that you want uh, for us to collect up what we think is good and hand it to you is preposterous and evil. But uh, to receive the gift that you've given, to rejoice in the Christ who, who paid our sin debt, who tore the veil, um, it's a beautiful thing, Lord. It's a relief to the soul. And I pray that that's what this would be today, Father. I pray that you would relieve souls and give them rest. I pray that, they would, um, that the, this flock would um, rejoice in the full and finished work of Christ, that they would remember that it is finished for them, that they would remember that salvation is a gift and that nothing um, must be added. We pray all these things for Christ in his glory and in his name. Amen. Thanks, you guys.